Hey there! Are you tired of waiting for the next episode of It's Probably Not Aliens? Well, we've got some good news for you. On Nebula, our streaming service, you can get access to all our episodes a week early. That's right, you'll never have to wait again to hear Scott and I debunk the latest ancient astronaut theory or get a movie fact wrong. But that's not all. Nebula is home to dozens of content creators we know you like, so you can find all your favorites in one place. Plus, we post content on there that you won't find anywhere else. And the best part? By signing up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash probablynotaliens, you're directly supporting the show and both of us. So don't wait any longer. Join Nebula today and listen to the next episode right after this one. sort of the great steampunk fetish is the airship, right? That's how you know you're in a steampunk world is you look up and you see Zeppelins flying overhead. In fact, they're, they're so common in alternate history that you might even speculate that there's something about messing with the time stream just causes spontaneous generation of Zeppelins or blimps or air, air, dirigibles or airships that they just sort of appear when, when they're signed that the time stream has been meddled with. It's the most temporal, um, temporally, well, as we've seen with the Bermuda Triangle, that airplanes are very susceptible to temporal incursions. Yeah. Blimps are fine. Right, exactly. That's you want to be, if, if you're going to be, you know, a time warp or a temporal disturbance, then uh, you're, you're safest in a, just like in, in a rainstorm, you want to be in a, in a car because of the rubber tires. In a, in a time storm, you want to be in a Zeppelin. It's perfect. It's interesting because uh, I think that there's like a there's a solar punk angle for that coming back, which is like the whole trying to imagine a future where we successfully managed the things that we need to manage in order to tackle climate change. And yeah. there's a lot of talk of bringing these things back because when they aren't exploding over New York City, they actually are uh, a very energy efficient form of travel. I think yeah. Well, there, I mean, there's just something kind of stately and beautiful about the idea of the airship. And so that's probably what, why it appeals to us today and why people, we can't lose it in, in steampunk is, you know, it's a dream of a world that's just a little bit more wondrous, right, than our own. A, 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 mm -hmm. a history that tracked off in a different way. It was, it's just a little more marvelous than our own. Now, you know, steampunk has all sorts of shady colonial baggage, you know, when you romanticize the late 19th century too much, it doesn't take long before you get into some sticky territory. But airships seem relatively innocent of all that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know who's, you know, I don't think, I don't know who's working the, well, they don't have coal boilers. I would like, you know, like, do, do you need, you know, is, is there sort of what the labor structure uh, on an airship is, but it seems relatively innocent of all the stuff that makes steampunk a little bit icky. You had it here first, the least problematic Victorian technology. Um, <laughs> hi, people on the internet. Uh, this is It's Probably Not Aliens, a podcast where we talk about ancient astronaut theories and pseudo-history and pseudo-archaeology and all sorts of stuff. And I'm Tristan Johnson. I'm the host today. Scott is actually out. He had a, a technology malfunction, but I brought in a very, very special guest today that I'm very excited to talk with because this is an episode where we're talking about late 19th century American history, but not only that, but paranormal phenomenon, the relationship with technology and just a general high Victorian goofiness. And <laughs> there's nobody else who I could think to talk to except for my former supervisor, Rob McDougall. So please, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks very much, Tristan. I'm, 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 I'm so touched that when you thought of high Victorian goofiness, that uh, I'm the person you thought of. But uh, yeah, I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. I mean, who else except for the person who got me to read, uh, I think, at least two books on penny farthings, or at least uh, where <laughs> penny farthings were a major part of the theory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, penny farthings play a surprisingly significant role in 
the historiography of technology, important works on why bicycles don't have that big giant front wheel anymore. Is that, That's a whole thing, but that's another podcast. Before we get going, the typical questions that people ask when I'm in their house, um, who are you and what are you doing here? Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, it's nice of you to let me in. My name is Rob McDougall. I am a historian of the United States, as you said, in the especially uh, I studied the U.S. in the late 19th and early 20th century. But I'm particularly interested in the history of science and technology, not the, not the nuts and bolts so much, but ideas about science and technology, cultural ideas, uh, especially wrong ideas and false ideas uh, and weird ideas, what you might call pseudoscience, although that's a whole loaded term, but definitely weird science and weird thoughts that people had about science and technology in the 19th century. That's kind of, that's one of my, my favorite topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right in the smack middle of, I think, as you described it, the part of American history that always gets cut for Christmas break. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Sure. Sure. You get to the civil war and then jump ahead to the, yeah, it's, it's between wars. And so it's not, therefore it's not, it's not thrilling to people, but it is thrilling to me. Yeah. And uh, I'm working on a video uh, soon on the assassination of President Garfield, which I'm sure is also going to be highly in that area. So. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. It's a, well, don't get me started. <laughs> yeah. So here's what we're talking about today. And so we've been doing a little bit of a series. The uh, episode we did last week, which hasn't aired yet, was on this sort of project to find UFOs in the historical record because people who really want to believe have been trying to find things in the past because there's this troubling problem of UFOs seemingly deciding to show up just around the time we started having flying saucer stories and science fiction in books with titles like Tales to Amaze and unbelievable but true type things. So the previous episode we did was on the depictions of flying saucers in like, you know, Renaissance and medieval art and stuff like Uh that. Uh Great. But this one comes uh, from the Victorian age where there was a whole lot going on as far as like this is sort of not quite when like the real UFO phenomenon really takes off in like the mid 20th century with like Roswell and Area 51, all that kind of stuff like post-World War Two. But there was definitely a almost proto UFO thing going on, like interest in like science fiction was starting to take off. Aliens were just starting to be like a thing that people conceived of, really. And so it became a good amount of fodder for people to dig into the record and be like, hey, I found another thing that was flying in the sky that people can't explain. Must be aliens. So so the claim is that in one particular interesting event in late 1896 and 1897 in the American uh, West and Southwest, there is this report of hundreds of people reportedly seeing flying cigar-shaped objects that had spotlights and all sorts of strange encounters, many with people claiming that they're from Mars. So according to the History Channel, this is the real deal. This is proof that extraterrestrials visited the American Southwest and West in the 1890s. But uh, we're going to get to the bottom of that today. Excellent. So first, um, to kind of give like a little basic uh, rundown of what this is, is that What they called them uh, was mystery airships or phantom airships, which was late 19th century fascination, like kind of like UFO sightings. There would be these these mystery airship sightings that seem to have shown up around the world if some some researchers are to be believed. But the main phenomenon is that in 1896 and 1897, there was a whole lot of incidences. And some people who have like tracked the reports of these actually seem to have them following like telegraph lines and stuff like that. Telegraph lines or railroad lines. Yeah, yeah. Hundreds of, you're right to say that there were airship sightings. They did happen all over the world. And for about 30 years, they happened. But when people talk about the great airship mystery, they typically are talking about this explosion in, is it 1896, 1897 across the United States of Mm -hmm. hundreds, hundreds of reports uh, of mysterious airships in the sky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And according to one book I read, there's sort of a timeline that literally like starts in California and sort of ends in Texas of these sightings in the line, which is like if you're doing, you know, historical research, that is fairly compelling if it's if it's not just like scattered and random, but it's just like there's like a path of it going. But we'll talk about this a little bit. And on top of there being uh, reports of these flying ships, they always came out at night 
They were unidentified. They had lights. Sometimes they were compared to dirigibles, which is basically, I think, a, a hard blimp. Yeah, I don't know how deep you want to, me to go into dirigible geekery, but basically <laughs> a blimp is soft like a balloon and, and the whole thing inflates. And then a, a Zeppelin or a, a dirigible, it's a hard shell with smaller gas-filled balloons inside it. Oh, and so, like, you can walk around inside a Zeppelin. Uh, you don't walk and, and see the balloons that are supporting the whole thing. You can have you can walk around inside a Zeppelin. You can't walk around inside the Goodyear blimp. Um, you know, it's the Goodyear blimp. You, you, you just sit. The cab is underneath it or, or right at the front, uh, attached to a giant balloon. A dirigible is like a rigid craft that is supported by a bunch of balloons inside. Okay. It sounds like it maybe is a bit more sturdy, although I don't know, was was the Hindenburg a dirigible or a blimp? So the Hindenburg was, yeah, I mean, I guess it's a, a Zeppelin, the German word for it, just named after the inventor. Uh, and yes, it was like a one of these rigid aircrafts because they can actually be much bigger and could carry more than a classic blimp, but they do have the exploding hydrogen problem. Oh, well, I'm not the biggest fan of explosions. So it's interesting because I know that like this happens often in like technology history. But whenever I hear about the decline of the airship, they always point that like the Hindenburg just made everybody swear off of this entire technology. And I don't know how true that is, but it was a humongous story. I mean, it wasn't the, actually the only one. I think that there was a couple of similar disasters. There was a British ship called the R101 or something like that, that it went down in flames over India. So there was, there was a couple of well-publicized disasters that scared people off it. I mean, they're also just, they, they were, despite all the hopes of their inventors, really hard to make and expensive. And then airplanes got invented. So that's also part of the story. Yeah, and that's just some metal and wood with a motor on it. So <laughs> at least the first ones. So uh, according to the reports also that there were crewmen and pilots uh, seen aboard these that were reportedly human looking, but some of the crew claimed to be from Mars. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, that the popular belief at the time was not that they were aliens, they had the much more Victorian answer, which was that this was the product of some rogue genius who was not ready to make the knowledge of their great invention to the public yet. And what's very interesting is that it was so widely speculated that Thomas Edison was behind this, that he had to issue an official statement denying that he was involved with this. <laughs> but that's just what he would do, of course. Of course, yeah. Uh, no, uh, Edison would needs no work to take credit for something. That was actually, that's true. Actually, that's true. That's how you know it's not Edison. Yeah, um, we actually like talked in a earlier episode of this show about how Edison. I feel like he fits the sort of mental category uh, that like Elon Musk fits today. Right. Where like he was just seen as this like wonderkind who was like solving all of the world's problems with technology to the point where they people were writing um, Thomas Edison fan fiction yes. called. Sure. called Edison Aids. Edison Aids, that's right. A whole whole little genre of uh, kind of adventure novels about what Edison was up to or what young versions of Edison were up to. Why don't they write Musk Aids today? Who knows? Uh, little adventure tales. About, maybe they, in a sense they do, I guess. That's how you know this couldn't be Edison, just for the same reason that, you know, if there were mysterious ships floating in the sky today, you know, do you really think Musk would keep it a secret if he was building something like that. If he like, why would he not just no. tell us every day? Yeah, he really he's more of a person who takes credit for something that doesn't work yet. He he takes he takes something that's like one quarter invented uh, and then says, "There you go. I have made global internet. It destroys." Um, every single telescope that's underneath them. But hey, sometimes if you don't have a tree in your yard, you can get internet. Yeah. So to kind of like uh, trace this to its beginning, the first wave of these airships started in 1896 in California, and then they moved other areas moving east across the country. But uh, some of them reported that the occupants were visible, but others said, you know, sometimes it was at night and that their clothing was sometimes reported to be unusual. I feel like there was a high standard for what was unusual back then. <laughs> like, sure. Oh. His hat is not wearing a hat. Oh, my goodness. Like, or something like that. So we are to imagine somebody staring up at the sky and something, you know, never before seen a flying craft, sort of, you know, a navigable flying craft. There were hot air balloons. 
distance, but a flying, steerable flying craft flies overhead, mysterious lights, uh, unknown provenance. And then, yes, what makes the, the viewer's monocle pop out is, is, my goodness, the women are wearing britches or something like that. Yeah, completely like legitimizing if this is a real story. I imagine that goggles and stuff might have had to be part of the, the setup. Ah, so. Undoubtedly, they were wearing goggles and gears and stuff on their clothes. Yeah, everything. of course. Yeah, yeah. And having like a big uh, scarf because it would probably be cold. Um, maybe not. It's California. And then apparently somehow these sky people were also, somehow they also were able to talk with them in some cases. And the, they said that they were from Mars, speaking perfect English. And there's a really great story about how the Martians know English that comes up later. But um, basically the main thing to talk about these things that makes them stick out as strange, because as you mentioned, like we are almost in single digit years away from this act, this technology being something that is actually possible. Or- yeah, within years, Zeppelin was, even as this was happening, Zeppelin and people like him were experimenting with these, you know, with miniature models of these things. And the first real rigid airships would, I think, fly in that decade, within a few years. And then, of course, as we said, airplanes would also be flying within 10 years. And uh, what, uh, 1905, or I think is the Wright brothers. This is making me think that how is it that the advent of drones, like commercial drones, hasn't resulted in a huge uptick in UFO sightings? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> there is a kind of UFO resurgence these days, but they don't especially look like drones, as far as I know. Yeah, I know that the United States, like they have that, the United States has like an actual Pentagon led program. And I think that that UAP thing, I'm going to try and do an episode on it a little bit later, but I think that what they are trying to test for is like advanced spy drones from like other countries and stuff like that. That would be my guess. But one of the uh, quotes I got here is from a guy named Mike Dash, who's one of the researchers that I looked up while doing this, who said, not only were the mystery airships bigger, faster, and more robust than anything produced by the aviators of the world, they seemed to be able to fly enormous distances, and some were equipped with giant wings. The 96-97 airship wave is probably the most investigated of all historical anomalies. The files of almost 1,500 newspapers from across the United States have been combed for reports. An astonishing feat of research. The general conclusion of investigators is that a considerable number of the simpler sightings were misidentification of planets and stars, and a large number of the more complex, the result of hoaxes and practical jokes. A small residuum remains perplexing. So it's interesting, like the mystery has been come back to uh, several times over the years. The biggest report that we have seen is uh, comes from a report in the Sacramento Bee and in the San Francisco Call, where supposedly at about a thousand feet on November 17th, 1896, one of these flying ships was seen over the city of Sacramento, where witnesses said they saw a dark shape behind the light. One of the witnesses, a guy by the name of R.L. Dari, reported that he saw a voice coming from the craft that was issuing commands to increase elevation or to avoid hitting a church steeple. Ah. And here's the part where you get some very interesting um, look into the way that newspapers talked, is that uh, in what was no doubt a wink to the reader, he said that he believed that the captain was referring to the tower of a local brewery as there were no churches nearby. <laughs> Classic humor. Yes. Real, real rib tickler there. Um, <laughs> Very droll. Well, and that is the key, I think, is 19th century newspapers. The thing you just said about how there are thousands of sightings and, you know, if there are a thousand sightings and 498 of them are, you know, people misidentifying planets and 498 of them turn out to be hoaxes, then I suppose that makes the remaining four mysterious. That's one way of putting it. If, if, if sort of, if, you know, if you have 999 cases where it's a hoax, then that last case does seem very anomalous. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, as we'll get into later, this is also just a time where newspapers weren't like super above lying if they thought it would sell newspapers. So oh, yeah, not at all. Not at all. That's, I, I don't know if we're getting ahead of ourselves, but that I think is a big part of the explanation is, mm-hmm. is, is what how newspapers worked in those days. Yeah. Um, one description of the craft also said that it was powered by two men on bicycle pedals <laughs> and that there appeared to be a passenger compartment which laid under its main body and that it had a light mounted on the front end that witnesses also reported hearing the sound of singing as it passed overhead. Then, 
November 19th, 1896, in Stockton, California, their Daily Mail featured one of the earliest accounts of apparently an alien sighting where a guy by the very Victorian name of Colonel H.G. Shaw, who uh, claimed that he was driving his buggy through the countryside near Stockton, where he came across what appeared to be a landed spacecraft, um, describing it as having a metallic surface that was completely featureless apart from a rudder and pointed ends for all of that space air. Yeah. And that it was about 25 feet wide and about 150 feet in length. And that apparently it had seven foot tall or 2.1 meter tall uh, extraterrestrials approached him, which were, as he said, emitting a strange warbling noise. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then we get one of my favorite lines I've ever seen, which is that they apparently examined his buggy and tried to force him to accompany him back to the ship, but he was just too strong and they were he was able to overpower <laughs> these people. Yes, <laughs> too strong. For, and they had to be a good... 2.1 meters tall, I tell you. <laughs> yes. Oh. And so, yeah, they gave, they gave up when they, uh, quote, lacked the physical strength to force him aboard. Uh, and then they lift off the ground and sped out of sight. This led to the belief that these were Martians who were trying to kidnap an Earthling for unknowable but potentially nefarious yes, purposes. Yes, they wanted his buggy. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you know, before we turn, as I'm sure we will, to dumping cold water on all of this, it, it's, I think you have to appreciate just how there's something so picturesque and old timey about dirigibles pedaled with yeah. bicycle pedals from Mars to, you know, to abduct our buggies. It's, it's, it, there is something delightful about it, or at least for, you know, for a, a Victorian nerd like myself, there is something delightful about it, you know, before we come along and, and, and spoil all the fun. Yeah. I mean, how could I not read this stuff and be like, oh, I need Rob to see this. <laughs> I need to show Rob this, this stuff I found. No, those are great. So some people have looked back on this event and um, a lot of like ufologists have claimed that this is a early example of a published extraterrestrial or attempted abduction. Yeah. I'm guessing that the the ships that have the hover rays hadn't shown up yet or else they would have been able to overpower his buggy. But um <laughs> And then apparently on November 21st, 1896, there was a mystery light that reappeared over Sacramento, but was also seen in that same evening were seen over Folsom, San Francisco, Oakland, Modesto, Manteca, uh, Sebastopol, and several other cities. So apparently this event is like the big one because reportedly hundreds yes. of witnesses saw this event. Yes, the Armada arrived and those are the cities that, that the aliens would target, presumably. Um, yeah, that's there's there's... That's clearly the first one was just the advanced wave, right? And then the mothership mm -hmm. arrives. Yeah. And again, this will get into some of the interesting parts about how we do history is that there's a lot of reports of this. There's a lot of eyewitnesses and yeah. or at least they say that there's a lot of eyewitnesses. And then as after this event, then there was a rash of sightings across the United States of uh, sightings of these airships. And I picked out the ones that I found that what I, I, I just, I wrote down as absurdly Victorian. <laughs> and the first one I think is going to be your personal favorite, which is that in Arkansas, a former state senator reportedly said that he saw an airship where he was told by the pilot that the craft was bound for Cuba to use its Hotchkiss gun to kill Spaniards. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Wow. Uh, well, they, you it's know, like that speaks exactly to specifically 1897. <laughs> yes, Mars has come to kill Spaniards. That's you know something that kind of gives you a warm feeling that that of interplanetary brotherhood that they could find this common ground. That is the sheriff in Arkansas and the Moon Men, the Martians. And as far as I can tell, the Hodgkids gun is some sort of machine gun some sort of like early machine gun? Yeah, I think so. I think that is exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, these are, you know, it's obviously part of what's in the mix here is dreams and fears of imperialism and imperial war and the, what, you know, what is war going to look like in the new age with the new technology and war with Spain was on the horizon in these years. And so to attach it just as, you know, the 20th century UFO flap can't be disentangled from the Cold War. Uh, people are going to view these things through the prism of the geopolitics of their time. Mm -hmm. There's actually something very interesting to that because like, I always thought that it was a thing we saw in retrospect, but I guess there might've been at the time, there's this rapid adv advance in technology, sort of like, this is the part where the logarithmic uh, advance in technological progress starts happening. And all of these new inventions are coming out one right after the other. And I know that like, 
in the way that we sort of frame it, we always think of World War One as like the big conflagration where all of these technologies just turned uh, Europe into a human meat grinder for four years. But um, I always thought that like that was like a thing we saw in retrospect that we were building up. But I guess that was there a time like where the technology was advancing? People were like, oh, if we ever go to war with any of these things, it's going to be terrible. Yeah, yeah, I think that there was. I mean, yes, you're right that, that part of the narrative of the First World War is people's naivete that they didn't realize how terrible war was going to be. But at the same time, there were anxieties. Actually, I think there's a kind of interesting cultural comparison you can make here. I'm generalizing, of course, here, but I think that you can contrast a kind of American optimism with a British anxiety slash pessimism that in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, which really arguably is the zenith of British power, of the British Empire and British power all over the world, there is actually a ton of anxiety about the next war and a ton of anxiety about airships, about German airships, about war from above. There's a whole genre of German invasion novels, novels in which Britain is invaded by Germany in the 1890s, the 1900s. Um, and there are airship scares in the early 1900s, 1909, where British people see airships, but they don't jump to the conclusion that these are Martians come to kill Spaniards. They, they jump to the conclusion that these are Germans come to kill them, because this is something that they are thinking about more and more and more. But while the British are pessimistic and anxious at this moment in history, Americans are enraptured, more, more or less. Obviously, I suppose you can find Americans that are anxious, but Americans uh, are excited about the coming century of air power and I think assume that surely either those are Americans driving those airships. That's the one theory, right? Is that is that Edison invented it and it's a sign of American know-how or their friendly Martians come to help us kill the Spaniards. And uh, so either way, Americans, I think in 1896, at least, I'm not talking about Americans in 2022, Americans in 1896 are optimistic and excited about the coming age of dirigibles and air power. Yeah, this is like only a few years away from like the Great White Fleet and America and uh, like kind of what what's like the Great White Fleet was like this big naval tour that the U.S. did around the world. Yes. But um, basically it's America saying kind of coming out of the isolationist, like closed off from the world feeling and being like, hey, we're a world power now. Yes, we're a world. And that's what the Spanish-American War, too, is. I mean, that's America's coming out as an imperial power also, mm -hmm. that they go to war with Spain and uh, whoops, uh, the Philippines fall into their pocket and Cuba falls into their pocket. And I guess there's nothing for it but to become an imperial power. And it is kind of accompanied with all sorts of rhetoric about America's arrival on the world stage as a new colonial imperial power and a lot of excitement and optimism about that. Yeah, because I think this is like the first time that America's like had these sort of like foreign wars since they were like fighting Barbary pirates and stuff yeah. like that. I mean, so. you know, you could say, well, sending the army across the North American continent and, and killing all of the native people, mm -hmm. that, that also is a kind of expansionist imperialism. But it doesn't seem foreign because we think of that continent as being naturally the United States. Uh, we've come to think of it as being naturally the United States. Yeah. But definitely, if you define imperialism as crossing water to kill people and take their land, then the United States really becomes an imperial power in yeah, 1898. Yeah. And even uh, the, this, um, event, this series of airship sightings was all in land that was taken in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which is all the land there that was annexed by from Mexico. So it's not, not saying America didn't do an imperialism, but yeah, they, it's sort of their their entrance into European style colonization of foreign land over waters, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's this kind of all these things are in the mix, both the technology, the fact that, that we're right on the cusp of airships and flight. And so that's something exciting, something people are interested in. And this imperial moment or this nascent imperial moment uh, about which Americans are excited and the British are anxious. And just to back up a little bit, I think, I mean, as you probably already know this, you'll see this as you do your series on UFOs in different eras, is that, I mean, I tend to think people 
see weird stuff in the sky all the time. They see weird lights and shapes in the sky all the time because it's the sky. It's it's big and you see stuff in it and, and you see stuff <laughs> you can't understand. The, the questions that are sort of interesting historically are when someone sees something in the sky, what do they think it is? What meanings do they ascribe to it? Do they say, oh, that's God. Oh, those are angels. Oh, those are spirits. Oh, those are Germans. Oh, those are ultra terrestrials. They're Martians. So what means do people ascribe to it? And then the other question as a historian is, is it newsworthy? The reason we know about the great airship scare of 1896, 1897 is because of hundreds of newspaper articles about it. So it's because it was interesting to put in the newspaper that someone had seen something in the sky. And interesting enough that then, you know, that the story spread and you just described the way the story starts in uh, Sacramento and then spreads locally and then spreads nationally. And that's a perfect description of how news stories spread in the 1890s. Like it just sort of, how did the ship travel that fast? In fact, you said earlier, isn't it interesting that it traveled along the path of the telegraph? Well, I'll tell you what travels along the path of the telegraph. It's news stories about people telegrams. seeing telegrams, exactly. <laughs> newspapers, news travels along the path of the telegraph. Mm -hmm. it's, it's as if, you know, people saw weird things in the sky and then it uh, traveled to everywhere that had the internet. Then, you know, we might have an explanation for how that story spread. And even that's sort of novel too. Yeah. Like it's not super novel because I know that like um, the news of Lincoln's death got spread super fast because of the telegraph lines. but. Still, like a story crossing the country, especially from a uh, West East Coast that fast is still kind of novel. Yeah, it's novel. And it's, I mean, it's just a, it's a great example of virality, right? And, and sort of stories going a kind a particular kind of story going viral. And I'm sure that what happened is that the story sold, it caught people's attention and other people got in on it and the question, what makes it newsworthy, draws our attention to, you know, well, what's the media environment? What's the media context of this moment? And we were saying before that you know, 19th century newspapers are notoriously unreliable. I mean, hoaxes are extremely common. It almost doesn't even make sense to call them hoaxes, because when you hoax someone, you are trying to fool them. And a lot of stories in 19th century newspapers are just baldly ridiculous, and they don't expect to fool anyone. And if they do fool someone, well, more is the, that's all, all the better. It's funny that way. But they just write them because they are entertaining. And a story like that can be right next to a true story about the important events of the day. And that's not strange in a 19th century newspaper. So you have stories mm -hmm. about, you know, a six-week series in the, in the New York world about the creatures we see living on the moon with our telescopes, the moon bats and the uh, Edgar Allan Poe wrote some of these stories. Like they were understood as a kind of acceptable, not quite respectable, but expected kind of jocular, just fooling around with the news. And the real rule was caveat lector, let the reader beware. Like if you're dumb enough to be fooled by this, then it sucks to be you. But then I also think that probably what happens in this case is that there's something about the story that is sticky, that is viral, and people do get excited about it and start reporting. So you have a mix of newspapers ginning this stuff up and people actually seeing lights in the sky or thinking, convincing themselves that they see something in the sky. And here's the story, here's the explanation and the meme of, oh, it's a phantom airship just goes, you know, explodes virally for a few months and then dies out because it stops being interesting uh, until it pops up again mm -hmm. in, you know, in the UK connected to German fears or or wherever. Yeah, the kind of, um, that follows very well the sort of uh, pattern of this. It also uh, reminds me a lot of the sort of current Twitter meme that is um, making a realistic looking news headline, like a screenshot of a news website mm -hmm. with a headline that is silly, <laughs> but is just not silly enough <laughs> that you almost could believe it given that it's really hard to tell what is satire at the moment yes and just put something right at that line and then just see where it goes and it's very funny sometimes well i mean part of my my whole fascination with the kind of 19th century media environment comes from a sense that the 21st century media environment is very similar and in the in the long sweep of human history it may be that the 20th century 
with its sort of, you know, three news networks and two important papers of record that were very sober and careful and objective about telling you the truth. And Walter Cronkite telling the country the, the single truth coming from the national dad. It may be that that kind of tightly controlled media environment, that that's the historical aberration. And this kind of anything goes wild frontier that we had in the 19th century and that we apparently have today, that that is in fact, you know, more typical. That makes sense. Um, I got a few more fun, fun stories uh, from this period. Uh, One account from Texas where they saw an encounter with an airship that had, quote, five peculiarly dressed men (laughs) who asserted that they were descendants of the lost tribes of Israel Ah. and had learned English from the 1553 North Pole expedition led by Hugh Willoughby. (laughs) That's excellent. Well, it's funny that they're almost always people like aliens just don't seem to be a meme to the same extent. I mean, you had Colonel Shaw had his 2.1 meter tall men, but that's not even that impressive. You know, that's that's just a basketball mm-hmm. player. But the aliens aren't a meme. They're always just men. And then, yes, they learned English because they're the lost tribe or they learned that, you know, Star Trek quickly resorts to universal translators. It's just more interesting if they can talk English, right? Oh, yeah. Another one I found from the Albion Weekly News uh, reports that an airship uh, crashed just inches from where they were standing, but then the airship suddenly disappeared and there was a man there uh, where the vessel had been and that the pilot showed them a small device that enabled him to shrink the airship small enough to store the vessel in his pocket. (laughs) But a rival newspaper, the Wilsonville Review, claimed that its own editor was an additional witness in the incident and that he heard the pilot say the words, uh, Weaver et ro Ebir Kispus. Easy for you to say. Which means subscribe to the review spelled backwards. <laughs> yeah, okay, there you go. Drink your Ovaltine. Yeah, the secret codes. If the newspaper is just making stuff up, then there's nothing stopping the rival newspaper from elaborating or extrapolating. That's that's Yes, ending. It's good improv. Right, it's, it's, it's good, good improv. <laughs> yeah, then there's one, uh, one sighting apparently in uh, St. Louis where the vehicle was propelled by three large propellers but was reportedly crewed by, quote, a beautiful nude woman and a bearded man, also nude. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't beautiful. And that the witness attempted to communicate with the crew in order to ask for their origins. Eventually, they understood what he was asking of them, and they both pointed to the sky and uttered something that sounded like the word Mars. Mars. Beautiful nude women from Mars. It's perfect. Uh, Then they have one that looks like they just like uh, dived in on somebody mid-adventure. This came from the Table Rock Argus. Great name for a newspaper. No notes. Table Rock. But apparently on these passengers that are on the ship, they saw a woman tied to a chair, another woman attending her, and a man with a pistol guarding their apparent prisoner, which just sounds like they walked into the middle of some sort of like 19th century adventure novel or something. absolutely, absolutely. You know, once you open the door to fantasizing about what might be on one of these ships, then quickly, you know, the subconscious uh, rears up and we get a lot of beautiful nude women on bicycles and women tied to chairs and the things that people like to imagine coming down from the sky. And another story in Aurora, Texas, said that one of these airships crashed into a windmill. The wreckage had hieroglyphics on it. Another, like, you know, the whole obsession with uh, Egypt that was going on at the time. And that it was made of a mixture of aluminum and silver that it must have weighed several tons. And then uh, that there was a dead Martian on board that they gave a, quote, Christian burial in the town. Good. Well, that's that's very, very broad minded of them to do that. That's nice. But this has a postscript, which is that a UFO research organization in 1973 went to investigate the burial. Mm -hmm. And according to them, their metal detectors indicated a quantity of foreign material might be buried under there, but they were not permitted to exhume. And then when we returned several years later, the headstone and whatever metallic material laid underneath it was gone. Bummer. Interesting how that always happens. And then best one for last. Uh, This is a story by Alexander Hamilton of Leroy, Kansas. Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. I did not know he lived until 1897. (laughs) I could have sworn. What's it called? He took took getting shot and being 100 years old pretty well, it seems. And also living in Kansas, apparently. Interesting. So apparently, according to this, Hamilton, his son, and a tenant witnessed an airship hovering over his cattle pen. And then under closer examination, the witness realized that there was a red cable that had gone down from the airship and had lassoed one of his heifers, but that the heifer had gotten entangled in the fence. And then after they unsuccessfully tried to free the heifer, Hamilton cut loose a portion of the fence and then stood in amazement to see the ship, cow, and all rise and slowly sail off. Martian cattle rustlers. I can't believe Lynn Miranda didn't put that in the musical. 
Yeah, I know. And so, so this is funny because this is the one that was actually contemporaneously found out to be a hoax, but for a very Victorian reason, which was that it was um, confirmed via interviews by Hamilton himself that the story was a successful attempt to win a Liars Club competition, <laughs> which was a competition to create the most outlandish tall tale. <laughs> That's excellent. And I was like, I don't think in the 20th century you could have Liars Clubs, um, but... Right. There's a grand American tradition of just, not just American, of course, but there is a grand tradition of tall tales and spinning yarns. And people are obviously having fun with this. And there, it's not easy to to sort of pull apart which stories are just meant to be jokes and which stories are, you know, people honestly believe they saw something, but they all just blend together in a melange of half-truths and non-truths. Yeah, it must have been difficult when newspapers posted memes as part of their uh, daily thing. And so that's the cases of like this particular rash, but there have been other scattered cases afterwards and before. For example, Charles Fort wrote about a mystery airship in uh, Copiapo in Chile yeah. uh, that was apparently a giant shining bird driven by a motor. <laughs> Charles Fort, I actually, like when that name came, a uh, light went off in my head because I'm like, Rob's telling me about Charles Fort. Yeah. This guy who... It's basically a researcher who just dropped into libraries across the country and just found every weird story he could and just clipped them out and put them in books and published a whole bunch of them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ford is a great character. I mean, I'm sure you could do more with him on your podcast. He's a little different than your usual. The thing about Ford is somewhat like these 19th century newspaper editors. It's really hard to tell if he believed any of this stuff. But yes, he was a writer. He would be writing, this would be a couple of decades after the airship uh, craze. He, this was in, he wrote his books in the, like the 19-teens, 1920s. He tried writing a couple of novels, but really his great works were just works of collection of research and writing. He would sit in the library, generally the New York Public Library, I think, and just sift through newspapers, magazines from all over the country from the last 30 years, just collecting weird stories. And in particular, he liked stories of things falling from the sky that aren't supposed to fall from the sky, like frogs or red rain or mashed potatoes. And then things, also stories of people seeing things in the sky, like UFOs, you can call them UFOs, but things people see in the sky. And he just collected a huge database of all these anomalies. And I think it's really probably thanks to Ford that we think of all of these things as a single phenomenon. When UFO people in the, say, the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, got interested in the phantom airships of the 1890s, almost certainly the way they found out about it was through Ford's books, that he's the, he would be the bridge between your 19th century airship scare and your 20th century UFO believers. Yeah, it even got to the point where um, his name is an adjective, like sometimes weird phenomena are called Fordian and sometimes weird weird events is called uh, Fordiana. That's right, that's right. Just, uh, it's it sort of, you know when you see it, it's a specific kind of weird event. UFOs, things falling from the sky, cryptids, you know, all that stuff that uh, the sort of History Channel stuff that they should be paying for it because he's the one who sort of, you know, he didn't invent any of this stuff, but he just collected so much of it that it created a kind of, you know, that we know what, you know, 14 events, these, this specific kind of weirdness that he was really good at collecting and curating, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And of course, like there are sightings that happened before. There was one sighting in Louisville, Kentucky in 1880, which was apparently a man surrounded by machinery, which he seemed to be working with his hands with wings protruding from his back, which sounds like, um, <laughs> I remember seeing this old silent film of like the more silly attempts at the first airplanes of just the guy running off the yeah, cliff. Yeah, with yeah, the yeah. that's right. Them. There's sort of like, you know, the kinds of diagrams that Leonardo da Vinci would draw or something and people trying to trying to build those things. Yeah, well, so it's obvious that these are, you know, people are imagining, well, what kinds of crafts could fly? And the fact that modern or 20th century UFO believers embrace the airships as, um, you know, a possible early UFO thing, it almost gives the game away for UFOs because it's so obvious to us that, oh, these 19th century airship sightings are so steampunky, so 19th century with all the dirigibles and, you know, uh, bicycle wheels and flaps and gas bags and things like that, that you should extrapolate from that and say, oh, just and in the same way, the UFOs of the 1940s and 1950s look an awful lot like jet planes from the 1940s and the 1950s. Like they, you know, technologically, they match the technology of the time. 
And Mm -hmm. because, of course, there are people, you know, seeing, maybe seeing a light or seeing some sort of odd shape in the sky, but then projecting onto it, their assumptions and expectations and imaginations about the sort of thing that that could be in the sky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I talked last week about how I think a lot of this in modern day is because we're facing all of these sort of great filter existential crises and that seeing that there's a technologically advanced civilization elsewhere in the universe might make us believe that it is possible to get through those. Yeah. That there's sort of something optic. If we can find an extraterrestrial intelligence that has somehow overcome fossil fuels and nuclear weapons and was able to get here, then that is a sign of optimism for us. Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, it certainly can be. I suppose you have different moments where people are, you know, frightened, just as the British, you know, being frightened of the scarship age, which also makes me think of War of the Worlds. So one thing we haven't talked about is the fact that Nobody in the 1890s says alien. If they do bring up visitors from another world, there's only one world they're even talking about, and that's Mars, right? They, they talk about mm-hmm. Mars. And, and the 1890s are interesting. It's a specific moment of interest in Mars. It's not a coincidence that people would think that it's Mars. The key figure here is an astronomer named Percival Lowell. And Lowell is an American astronomer built an observatory in Arizona. I mean, he's from New England, but the sky is clear in Arizona. You can see lots of stars and built a big telescope in Arizona. And Lowell was one of the chief popularizers of the idea that you could see canals on Mars, that you know, you'd look at, at images of Mars and he convinced himself that he could see straight lines on these images of Mars and then convinced himself further that these straight lines must be I'm going to say man-made, but not man-made, Martian-made canals, evidence of intelligent life. And Lowell publishes his book on Mars in 1895. So we're right in this moment. And it's not that everyone believed it, but this gives a real kind of scientific cast to the idea of life on Mars, to the idea that there could be you know, life on another world. So H.G. Wells, right at this time, he then takes, I was talking before about the invasion novels, so this sort of cycle of novels where the British imagine themselves being invaded by Germany as, they, as this becomes a national fear. Wells takes the plot of the most famous invasion novel, I think it was called like the Battle of Dorking. He takes that plot and he, he basically just copies the plot, but makes one change, which is instead of Germans, he makes them Martians. And he writes The War of the Worlds. And this, of course, is the classic novel of alien invasion. And basically, The War of the Worlds, you know, it's not optimistic at all. It's a kind of reverse colonialism. It's the horror that what if a more advanced species came and did to us what we have done around the world? Uh, It's pretty explicitly a sort of reverse imperialist, reverse colonialist thing. Damn. And when that comes out, 1897, it comes out too late, I think, to have inspired the airship scare. But these ideas are, no pun intended, in the air at this moment. Yeah, that fits. I did not know that H.G. Wells is, I did not know War of the Worlds went that hard. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it does. I mean, it's, it's not clearly against imperialism. It's just like, oh, it would suck if it happened to us. You know what I mean? It's, it's not like he's making yeah. a strong statement about, you know, but it's just like, oh, it, it, would, it would be a bummer if it happened to us. And then the last thing that I think is feeding both um, Lowell and Wells's imagined version of the Martians is Darwin, is sort of the Darwinian idea, the arrival of Darwinian evolution, and the idea that species have a sort of life story and a history. And the idea of like dying races and races that are more advanced and less advanced, because the Martians are always imagined by Wells, by Lowell, as a kind of older race that has become decadent, has somehow sort of like as older than humanity and more advanced than humanity, but is in some kind of degeneration or decline. And that's a British anxiety at this moment, especially. Stories about moon men from the early 19th century are just earthlings with funny hats. But the idea of a sort of species that is different from us, that is at a different place in civilization evolution than humanity, that I think is made possible by Darwin. Yeah, I guess you can see, I can see it in like a lot of ways, because like, especially for British anxiety, because Britain's old... Spain is old and then gets just destroyed by and is like known for being kind of like weak and sick and kind of gets destroyed. 
Uh, at that point, also, the Ottoman Empire is like in free fall. And then at the same time, because you were kind of talking about the idea of like the historicity of peoples and stuff like that, because that also takes root in politics and you have like the sort of nationalism yeah. stuff going on. And you've got these brand new countries like Germany and Italy, and they're like really, really taking off and uh, especially Germany and everyone's. To, and also even France has sort of a new republic happening. Exactly. Yeah. And and who's building airships? Germany. Like it's all these things are sort of connected that, yeah, that there's a sort of natural lifespan to countries and to empires and that maybe one country is leaving the world scene and another one is rising up. And I do think that that speaks to why the British are so frightened of these things coming from the skies while the Americans are considerably more optimistic. Although it's not, it doesn't take long, you know, then War of the Worlds, you know, 1938, Orson Welles, not H.G. Wells, but Orson Welles turns War of the Worlds into an American story. And they're already, people are ready to be frightened of Martians uh, attacking from above. Yeah. I want to talk about that at some point, because I know that that story is a little bit oversold, but is still an interesting thing about how our relationship with mass media was still a little, uh, a little, little young at that point. And as you mentioned, like, this is not unique because in the HA7, there was a rash of mystery airships seen on the East Coast. There was apparently in 1909, uh, New England, New Zealand, and various European countries had uh, sightings. And also, there was a ton of sightings of airships in 1912 and 1913. But at that point, uh, Count Verdenhand von Zeppelin had already made large passenger carrying airships that um, were already like, you know, a sign of the might of this technologically and economically powerful German empire empire that everybody was realizing was almost iconic of what they thought the 20th century was going to be. Yeah, sure, (laughs) Um, sure. So if you worry about German airships in 1914, that's not so much a crazy, uh, you know, flight of fancy as a, as a perhaps fairly, um, you know, sensible prediction. Yeah. So kind of like going into explaining what these are, um, various different types of explanations came through. Even at the time, they tried to explain that they were hoaxes or pranks or publicity stunts or hallucinations. One man suggested that the airships were swarms of lightning beetles misidentified to observers. (laughs) But then the most common one that comes up is that it was possible that at least maybe some of them were the result of some rogue inventor. And while that probably might not be the case, it's not as wacky as we'd say, as we mentioned, like there were functional airships that did exist before 1896. For example, there was the Arion in 1863, which was the first steerable airship in the United States, and that there were multiple inventors working on these designs. At this point, I think in 1884, uh, some French uh, officers and engineers flew an electric powered airship called La France that had seven successful flights over an 11 month period. And in 1896 and seven, also a guy named David Schwartz built an aluminum skinned airship in Germany that successfully flew over the Tempelhof field. Yeah. But then it also had a crash landing and was destroyed. So obviously not quite there, but like you can see that like these are more limited than the mystery airships, but we're not very far off. Yeah. And there are a few people named Lyman Gilmore and Charles Delshaw who apparently were possible candidates of being people who were interested in I think one of them was actually like interested. It was an inventor. They were all like rich inventors at the time who might have been able to do this. I think one of them ended up being like a dentist who was inventing dentistry technology. (laughs) But, um, you know, uh, there were some like people who would be good candidates uh, who might have actually been able to make something like this. And there was even a book in 2009 by an author by the name of J. Allen Denelik that made the case that the mystery airship could have been the work of an unknown individual that was funded by a wealthy San Francisco investor Okay, as a test vehicle for larger passenger carrying ships. And that the reason why they're different is that there might've been a handful of them that like crashed or they had to be like bodge repaired and like reflown and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. But the much more likely story is that this is the heyday of what is called in history circles, yellow journalism. Yeah where they were more likely to print manufactured story and hoaxes than modern news sources, and that editors in the late 1800s would have expected a reader to understand that these stories were fake. Many times they would even say that this was reported from an insane asylum to point out that it was a joke. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it's not impossible. People were inventing airships at this time. This is exactly the moment where they're inventing them. So it would be ridiculous to say it's impossible that anyone could have ever seen one. But there weren't hundreds of them flying all over the Southwest and Midwest. 
for months in 1896. The obvious explanation is that a few people saw a few things in the sky and then 19th century newspaper writers did what 19th century newspaper writers do, which is rush in and flood the zone with crazy stories. And as long as the story sold, you kept getting more of them. Yeah, because like one of the things that's uh, stark to point out is that none of these investigators who called themselves airshipologists, which is a wonderful word, I hope. Uh, we use in the future. None of them ever talk to witnesses. There's like one example of any witnesses being interviewed. And the only witness got interviewed was an 80 year old man in the 1950s who witnessed one of these when he was like eight. Oh, wow. So they, tra- they <laughs> um, track somebody down in the 50s. Yeah. That's great. Um, And that a lot of the stories are written with this sort of tongue in cheek tone with a focus on the sensational. Yeah. And also that after the wave concluded, the subject quickly fell out of the papers and public consciousness and was forgotten about pretty quickly, which implies that if, if, if something kind of is everywhere and then disappears, probably at the time, people were pretty aware that this was probably like uh, a- entertainment rather than information. Yeah, yeah. Or it doesn't even have to be all one or the other. Like some people, some people can believe it. Some people don't believe it. And the fun of it for the people of the time was that debate. P.T. Barnum, the great 19th century hoaxer, uh, huckster, always sort of felt that it was important to have both skeptics and believers because that meant that people would argue about it. And that kept you, that that was what turned the wheel of publicity. So I think you probably have both existing at the same time. And it was a thing that everyone was talking about for a little while. But yeah, in a lot of ways, it's, you know, we're very familiar with memes going viral today. And that's what this has all the hallmarks of to me. Yeah, for sure. So basically, after the rash of newspaper articles, it quickly disappeared from the public consciousness. And then nobody talked about it again, interestingly, until after World War II, specifically uh, into the 1960s, when UFO investigators came across them and started to try to reinterpret these airships to be possible precursor to post-World War II UFO sightings. Yeah, exactly. And as I said, I imagine that the way they found them, since they probably didn't have newspapers from the 1890s lying around. I imagine that the way they found them was our man, Charles Ford. Would not surprise me. Of course, I would be arrested also mentioning the most important one, which is that there were sources in 1897, like the Washington Times, that speculated that it was uh, another very Victorian word, a reconnoitering party from Mars, speculating that the visitors from Mars, fearful at the last of invading of the planet they have been seeking. And also in New Zealand, there was a mystery airship sighting that was reported to apparently be a Martian atomic-powered spaceship. So, wow. Yeah, I didn't didn't even know Atomic was on the radar in in 1909, but... um, Cutting edge. Here we are. But yeah, so like it fits, it's like to kind of kind of put a bow on this, it speaks a lot to the economic anxieties. And as you, the expert historian pointed out, like it says a lot of very interesting stuff about the culture that produced it, the technology and communication methods of the people of the areas that produced it, and that it speaks a lot to the specifically like this late Victorian relationship with technology and the shifting role of humanity's place in the cosmos. Absolutely. Yeah, technology changing so fast. We always think technology changes. Everyone thinks it changes fastest in their era, but and I'm biased because it's the era I study. But I think the 50 years from, let's say, 1870 to 1920, sort of around the turn of the 20th century, just think about how much the material constitution of the world changes is in those years. You get you know the, the railroad, the automobile, the airship, the airplane, the telegraph, the telephone, the radio, mass production, just... We think things have changed fast in our time, but we're just talking about cell phones. Like, like this is a real change. This is a change that actually, like, that you see everywhere. So that is happening. And then in addition, the things we talked about before about, you know, changing ideas about the age of the universe and man's place in the universe and all this stuff about imperialism and, and the relative power of different nations and the end of isolation, of geographic isolation. That's what the British are afraid of. The sort of the, the vision of the airships is a realization that being on an island doesn't protect them anymore. Just as in the the, the, mod, the 20th century UFO age is all about Americans realizing that, oh, bombs and missiles and things can come from the skies, right? That we are not sort of protected by being here. Mm-hmm. So all that stuff feeds into it. You're always 
always make me a better historian. And now I will approach this with uh, the idea that, like, yeah, looking into like what these say about the anxieties and the things of the time. And that's a big and important way. And it's a it's an educational takeaway. And it also uh, speaks a lot to why UFOs had like their big time in like the peak of the Cold War. Be interesting to explain the 90s uh, resurgence of it with the sort of X-Files fueled um, stuff. But that's a story for a different time. That's a story for another day. Sure. And of course, don't underestimate in this whole thing the power of motivated reasoning. When you want something to be aliens, you will find a way to make it aliens in your head. When you want something to be naked Martian women peddling velocipedes, you will make it naked Martian women peddling velocipedes in your head. Yeah. So that is the 1896-1897 mystery, which is, um, we learned a lot today. Um, You told me before the show, you don't have anything to plug, but libraries. I really don't. I've sort of withdrawn from the world of uh, social media and plugging. So support your local library. Excellent. It's it's actually kind of refreshing to have a guest who doesn't have a thing to plug. <laughs> I'm working on a book, but it's it, it, it'll be a while. The other book is for the nerds. It's, for the, <laughs> it's good. It's just you have to really, really care about the development of the telephone. Yeah, the next one, the next one will be more of a page turner, but it's not ready yet. If you are interested in checking out like this podcast, if you want to connect with us on Twitter, we've got at Props Not Aliens. And Scott's not here, but I would highly recommend you watch his YouTube channel, NerdSync. It's a very, very fun channel. And of course, I've got Step Back, the channel I've been doing for eight years. Wow. No, seven years uh, as of uh, next month. So very fun. I just made a new video and it's a very not fun topic. So learn about why anti-abortion movement is actually about segregation. Anyways, this show though, because podcasts, unlike YouTube, don't have uh, recommendation algorithms. So we actually thrive on word of mouth. So telling your friends about this podcast is definitely the way to help out the show or leaving reviews on your podcast platform of choice because all of that really helps us grow and uh, get this show out to more people. And if you want to show this to anybody, you can always drive us to probsnotaliens.com. Again, thank you so much, Rob, for coming out. Rob McDougall, great, great, oh. great friend, great historian. I'm so happy to have had you come on to this. Thank you, Tristan. This is a lot of fun, a lot of fun for me to do. Thanks for having me. And of course, everybody, until next time, the truth is out there. Eh, probably. <laughs> I was, that's more of a radio thing, not a, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>